This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 27th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Globalization has taken some hits in the last few years, and the recognition that the free flow of capital and people to where they can be most productive for themselves is decidedly on the wane. Cato's Joan Norberg says the once solid consensus on the importance of openness is worth fighting to regain. When I think about the case that is presented against uh, globalization broadly, uh, I guess what I think about in modern times, I can remember the you know the big fights over it in the '90s amid trade agreements, uh, the rise of China as an industrial power, and that sort of thing. It seems like today, uh, at least within the United States, what we're seeing is a lot of protections that have have built up over decades, almost like uh, you know cruft that has has developed uh, on our institutions. Um, it seems almost anathema to people like Joe Biden, to uh, Congress, to think, well, maybe if we got rid of some of this stuff, a lot of these institutions that we're constantly demonizing would actually function better. Yes, there's a uh, an unfortunate tendency for um, these tariffs and trade barriers and other things to build up over time and build their own constituency who uh, defend them. It's easy to implement. It's much more difficult to to get out of it. And, uh, and now, unfortunately, it seems like both the left and the new right have sort of rediscovered their inner economic illiteracy and combined old ideas about protectionism with new environmental concerns when it comes to the the democrats we should heavily subsidize domestic production of of certain green technologies and with the uh, national conservatives this this idea that globalization has somehow failed the working class has been combined with new security concerns geopolitical concerns uh, the, the rivalry with china so there's this perfect storm where all these different arguments are then combined with certain groups have a very real interest, economic interest in protecting their own uncompetitive businesses. You know, beyond that, what concerns do you have about uh, this effort to for countries to look inward? rather than outward for opportunities, for products, for innovation? Well, the thing is, globalization has continued to deliver despite the political backlash. If we look at the real results, uh, we've had 20 miserable years in a way. We've had financial crises. We've had the pandemic. We've had endless wars. And yet we've uh, also, when you look at objective indicators of living standards, the best 20 years in history, we've reduced extreme poverty by some 100,000 people every day over the past 20 years. 50% of all wealth that has ever been created as measured by GDP per capita for the average human being on planet Earth, 50% of all wealth that has ever been created was created over these past 20 years. And it has done so in countries when they've opened up because of global supply chains, because of the competition that constantly force businesses to upgrade technology and management. And we should cherish this. We should defend this. And the moment we're trying to uh, reintroduce protectionism and trade barriers, it's a threat 
to that development. And it's also a threat to the goals that these political forces talk about. If we're trying to have self-sufficiency in green technology, it'll be much more costly, much more expensive, much more inefficient, because we can't rely on components, work, ideas from other parts of the world. You know, one of the best lines that Cato trade people have which I uh, try to emphasize uh, all the time on this program, is that trade is one of the best, if not the best, foreign policy tool that we have. And that's exactly right. And that's why this turn towards self-sufficiency, repatriating supply chains, is it's a textbook example of how you lose friends and alienate people, precisely at the moment when America should look for friends and partners all around the world. Uh, it's losing friends in Asia and the Pacific by not engaging in trade deals. And also the talk in Europe right now is that uh, Biden's um, Inflation Reduction Act and all the subsidies which are all aimed at trying to repatriate supply chains when it comes to green technologies, that this is a strike at the heart of the uh, global economic model. It's a way of attracting European businesses to go to the US and, and lose jobs to the US. So what's going on in Europe right now is that some political forces are and important people are losing faith in a global economic, open, open world, and are beginning to talk about a subsidy race, trying to subsidize their own national champions and, and attract jobs and businesses from, from the US. So it's a way of um, not just losing out economically, but it's also a way of alienating those who should be your closest partners. And, and it's zero-sum thinking, right? It's zero-sum thinking that is, it, it, it appears at least, infectious. It is. The, the problem is that globalization can quickly unravel because it's dependent on the idea of this openness, that uh, I do my best in exchange for your best. It's win-win. It's positive sum. But the moment someone starts to implement tariffs, the moment someone starts to heavily subsidize their national champions, it creates this sense that we're in a tit-for-tat game. If they win out, if they hurt our businesses, we are going to have to hurt them. And we've seen this historically. This is the smooth, holy tariff uh, uh, lessons that we should have learned in the 1930s, that the moment you try to make your own economy great again by hurting the economies of others, you not just lose the ability to have division of labor, specialization, and, and wealth in your own economy, but you're also making the other ones repeat your mistakes, and that will hurt your export businesses as well. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a point, it, it almost seems paradoxical, uh, the idea that one, uh, free markets are incredibly robust and uh, they adjust quickly to changing conditions and yet uh, supply chains, especially in complicated pieces of equipment like televisions or uh, microchips or cars or that sort of thing, uh, can be pretty fragile. And they're hard to reconstruct after they've been uh, deconstructed or at least, uh, you know, invaded by some regulatory state. That's right. The lesson that we should have learned from the pandemic was not that uh, 
global supply chains are um, fragile in themselves. Quite the contrary. We saw an amazing ability by businesses and traders to rebuild supply chains in real time. And when researchers look at different countries and at different companies, they've learned that the ones who were most resilient were not the ones who had lots of short supply chains and lots of domestic uh, dependence, but rather those who have long supply chains and lots of options. So they could quickly change between different countries, uh, use the suppliers in countries that were open at the time uh, to, to avoid countries that shut down. So they quickly rebuilt supply chains and made sure that we still had food on the shelves, um, despite the fact that the world was shutting down. So it was really a triumph of globalization. And we should learn that lesson. We shouldn't put all our eggs in the same geographical basket. Because when we do, when problem strikes there, whether it be a an epidemic or a flooding or cyber attacks or war, then everything falls apart. However, the politics <laughs> that we are all dependent on the freedom to go on adapting and readjusting supply chains. That politics is fragile and it's dependent on the support by politicians and government to keep markets being open, even in times of trouble. And that's what we're seeing right now. That is incredibly fragile. And the consensus that we've had about globalization is falling apart right now. And that's incredibly dangerous for the economy for our security and for our ability to find friends around the world. The idea that openness, we're thinking broadly, economically, culturally, with respect to people mo moving uh, into and out of borders, are there negative impacts of being a first mover? That is to say, if the United States were to unilaterally say, well, we're, we're going to make immigration super easy. We're going to make uh, bringing your goods to our shores super easy. We're going to make it very easy for our goods to get to your shores. If we did all that unilaterally, is there a cost to being like a first mover in that way? I think there's a first mover advantage, and that's what we've seen over history. When Britain abolished the Corn Laws in 1846, when a few developing countries uh, early on, like uh, Taiwan, Mauritius in the 1950s, began to open up unilaterally their economies, it was an incredible boon to it. This really helped them because Obviously, businesses sometimes complained because they faced competition, but that was the very thing that forced them to step up and constantly upgrade their technologies, their management, and begin to create a much more productive and competitive economy. So I think there's a first mover advantage in opening up. And what we've also learned historically is that this creates and sets an example for others. When you disarm, so to speak. It's not really a disarmament because uh, you're actually making yourself stronger. But in the sense that trade negotiations, everybody seems to be so attached to their own trade barriers. When you say, I'm giving them up, this allows for other co political constituencies in other countries to say, 
let's follow that example. We don't have to hurt ourselves anymore because they hurt themselves. So it creates these positive spirals and it's a way of um, winning friends and, and influencing people, I think. Given all that, this is all, this, sound, this sounds great. I'm, I'm on board. Joanne, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, but there are a lot of countries that are pretty productive and they have pretty oppressive governments. Uh, the island of Hong Kong learned recently just how oppressive China, Beijing specifically, can be. Yes, that, that, that's definitely the case. Uh, however, the fact that China has been allowed an authoritarian uh, dictatorship that's threatening its neighbors, uh, the fact that it has been allowed to participate in the global economy over the past 30 years has lift, uh, lifted more, well, some 800 million people out of extreme poverty. And, and that's great in itself. But I also think that this is better for international relationships than a China that had been held down and kept in in hunger and extreme poverty. If you think that a big and heavily armed China feels humiliated and kept in in poverty, would be a safer uh, would be safer for the world and for for America. I urge you to look at countries like North Korea, where that's. It's it's definitely the case that the fact that they've stayed out of the global economy and, and because of their own policies and we've kept them out has not made them any safer. On the contrary, it means that they don't have a stake in the world order at all and feel like they're free to act according to their character, which is incredibly dangerous. And I think this is an important lesson right now in the um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's true that trade doesn't mean that we will never see wars, but it does mean that you have to think again if you're dependent on other countries. And one of the reasons why China hasn't gone all in and heavily armed uh, Russia to to defeat Ukraine is is not because they uh, like Ukrainian democracy or anything like that. It's because they are dependent on mutual exchange with the Western world, and they don't want to suffer secondary sanctions. So at least it holds them back quite a bit. There's this trend recently to talk about friend shoring and that we should mostly trade with countries that are similar to us. And I understand that temptation. It That makes sense. You don't want to benefit your rivals and you want to, want to partner with your friends. But we have to understand that the history of trade relations show that who is friend and who is foe and rival might be a little bit um, in flux. It changes. And one of the reasons why it sometimes changes is that sometimes those who are closest to you have the same need for certain goods at the same time and might want to shut you out of that market. So let me give you one example. During the pandemic in Europe, everybody in March 2020 needed personal protective equipment and face masks. Everybody needed it at the same time because they all suffered from it at the same time. So what happened? Countries like Germany 
and France, who are really the closest partners of other European democracies, they implemented export bans. They, in, in France's case, they even started to confiscate personal equipment that was just traveling through their borders on the way to Spain and, and Italy. They didn't do that because they are our natural enemies. They did that because we are so closely aligned geographically that we suffer the same problems at the same time. What saved Spain and Italy and Sweden and other countries? Well, the fact that we could buy these goods from China. Not because China is a, is a good friend, not because China has a uh, political and economic system that's close to ours, but precisely because they're on the other side of the planet. So they had gone through the first stage of the pandemic. They could begin for a while to open up and massively produce face masks that they weren't in need of at that time. So Spain, Italy and Sweden could buy it from them rather than from France and from Germany. And I think this tells us that diversification is the way to make us resilient, being able not, not to concentrate production, not even to your closest friend, but being able to diversify and be dependent on many different countries so that you can adapt and constantly readjust your, your supply chains. That helps us, even in the case when the guys you're buying from live in a dictatorship like China. Cato Institute Senior Fellow Joan Norberg is author of Open, The Story of Human Progress. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 